Well, let's just get rid of it. We don't need it. No, I'm kidding. We'll see what happens, um, and we'll play along if it falls. The Spirit wants it to fall if it falls, so we're going to let it happen. Um, I see you got the memo. I spit a lot. You guys are sitting back a little bit. We, did, in the budget, is there a new music stand? Uh, well, we know how to gift you. It'll be fine. Don't worry. Nobody stress. Okay. Right? Okay. Invite you to turn in your Bibles or your apps to Acts 27. Um, and we're going to see a little part of a story there from the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul towards the tail end of what we know of his ministry from the book of Acts. But hopefully pull from it some truth that we can cling to this morning and for the rest of our life and go from there and see what Jesus might do. Um, this morning. But it really is an honor to be with you guys. Uh, we have a, a close bond as churches, as Josh reminded us. So we were your sending church, and then um, you cared for us lovingly as we went through a significant transition almost more than four years ago now. So I've been, it will be four years I've been here um, this November. And so we're thankful for what the Lord has done and just bringing a church to health. Um, and giving us a new situation there in Escondido, so we're having a good time. I'm really excited that I get to be here and give Tab just a little bit of a break in preparation this week as your leaders and your elders and wives had an opportunity to get away, and I've heard that that went not just as planned, but maybe even better than planned, that the Lord really moved among them this weekend, and so I'm excited for that, and hopefully you'll see a lot of fruit of that in the days ahead. And that's one of those realities that you can set plans, and I'm sure Tab did a lot of work of preparing and planning for that retreat. And sometimes God takes our plans, the Lord will take our plans, and then shifts them a little bit and does what He wants to do instead. And so like with your leaders, that was probably in a good way. The Lord just moved in a gracious way, a kind way for them, a little further maybe beyond what they expected. But sometimes even in our plans, God will move in such a way that we don't realize or don't want at all, significantly can change our plans, but he's still at work in the midst of them. I was reading this text, this story of Paul, I was reflecting on my own life, my own walk in experience with the Lord, and thought back now a really long time ago as I continue to get older, that I at one time had the perfect plan for my life. And that plan involved having the absolute best situation for my future and my success as I defined it at that moment. And uh, just one of the foundational blocks of that plan and that success that I was eventually going to have was going to law school and studying to be a lawyer and then preparing. I was going to be in politics. I was going to be a great congressman. Anybody need a better congressman than they have? (laughs) We may be in the same congressional district. Lord, help us. So law school is this next step in the strategy. So I finished my undergraduate work and then moved to Ohio. Anybody from Toledo, Ohio? No, you probably wouldn't say it if you were. But I found myself really far from home and kind of just, if you will, on the seas of life without a lot of experience and just trusting that I could accomplish what I had set out to do. But law school for me was not like anything else I had done up to that Point because I kind of winged it through journalism school, and so that's, you just have to be quick on your feet, be able to make up stuff, and you know, provide fake news on occasion. 
But when you go to law school, then everything is dependent on one exam. Just at the end of the semester, after you've heard all the lecture, you've studied all the case law, you've written everything you need to write, you have one exam, and that exam is your grade for the whole year. And so that's the totality of your grade. There was no retakes, no extra credit to bolster your poor performance earlier in the semester. It all came down to that one test. So then second semester of my first year of law school, the fateful day comes when they posted all of the grades from those exams and the end of your first year final grade for law school. And they don't Maybe today they put it on the internet, but I'm dating myself by saying you had to actually go to the school and look on the board to see um, where you were grade-wise. And I found my number that corresponded to my name because they wanted to keep it private, right? They didn't want everybody to know how bad you were. And then found my number and I scrolled over and got to constitutional law. Okay, passed. That's great. I can keep going on. Criminal law. Okay, that was good. Probably not as good as I wanted but it works. Torts, which is essentially ambulance chasing, that was my best grade. Um, then it got to legal writing. It was like, uh, okay, well, I, I, I squeezed by and probably could have done better there too. And then I get on the board to civil procedure. Scroll over with my finger and F. And so I had taken the ship of my life out on the water and dramatically in that moment crashed on the rocks. And in my experience of law school, if you did not succeed, if you got that F, you were then out. They were like, we encourage you to do something other than law. And thank the Lord they did that. But in that moment, in that experience, like I would define my life as a train wreck, as a shipwreck, as a whatever wreck you want to come up with. And I would agree that that would have described how my life was flowing. And I remember asking questions in my head and out loud, where to now? What do I do? The 30-year plan for my life has just dealt a deadly blow. Like I have to start all over and reimagine. But as I look back now, some 18 years beyond that experience and that failure, I recognize that Jesus was pursuing me. He was letting the chips fall where he wanted them to fall. That I would truly meet him and then eventually learn to trust him. And if I look back on my life with just the right lens, I can see that the whole thing is just a succession of detours that were leading me to Christ and to his purpose for my life. And it's not just me, is it? Because I think... It's the same truth for you as well. You can probably look back on your life or even think through things you're going through right at this very moment or moments that you've persevered through and you realize that everything has happened exactly according to plan. It just hasn't always been your plan. But, If you know the one who determines the times and the boundaries of all of humanity, then friends, you can take courage. You can trust the one who calls you his own. That's what we want to talk about this morning. So if you're note taker, which white people in North America, how you say amen is by taking notes. The, the main uh, big idea is that trusting the Lord is the life of the believer. So trusting the Lord is the life of the believer. And that's what we want to see this morning from Acts 
27. We can read the whole thing, tell the whole story, but I just want to read for us verses 13 through 26 to get a taste of what's going on in this chapter, and then we'll pray and then unpack it and see what the Lord will have for us this morning. So hear the word of the Lord from Acts 27, verses 13 through 26. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of the small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then, fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered the gear. And thus, they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told We must run aground on some island. Well, good and holy God, we thank you for your word this morning. We even thank you for the narrative portions of Scripture that give us a description of the life of the church, of faithful saints living for your glory and trusting you, that they might be examples for us. Lord, we all come into this place with different experience throughout our whole life and different experience, even this morning and things that we're having to deal with and think through. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to surrender all of that to you this morning, that we'd hear from you, that you'd work in us the truth that you would have for each individual and for this church as a whole, that we would learn to trust you, Lord, and that you would equip us to do exactly that because you truly are the gracious and caring God that we've already sung and prayed about this morning. So, Lord, we ask that you guide my words, that they would be clear and faithful to your truth, and that you alone, Jesus, would be lifted high in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. So I know Grace Church has been through a series in Acts uh, uh, some while ago, Um, so you'll have to go back and see what Tab or whoever preached on Acts 27, if I got it wrong or not, Um, and then don't email me. But Acts as a whole is just the story of the birth of the church, right? It goes from the ascension of Jesus when he returned to the throne room of heaven all the way to the imprisonment of Paul. And that's where this is headed. There's one more chapter after 27 
that will get Paul into Rome. And all through this beautiful book of the work of the Spirit among the church, there is miraculous events that are happening. There is the unhindered preaching of the gospel to those that you would least expect should be able to hear the gospel. There is forgiveness of sin being proclaimed in the name of Jesus, just as he promised his disciples it should be. Then here, toward the end of this narrative that Luke is writing and giving to the church, Paul is being delivered to Rome among his final destinations with other prisoners of the Roman Empire. He's been on trial, if you're familiar with this section of Scripture, he's been on trial for just over two years at this point. He was first charged in Jerusalem. They captured him in the temple when he was doing normal Jewish worship, and the Jewish ruling council didn't like that he was preaching the name of Jesus, and so they end up arresting him and handing him over to the governors of Judea, the Roman-appointed political leader. So they bring him to Caesarea where their headquarters is and through the rule of two different governors, Paul remains in prison there and he's often brought before them to give a defense of this hope that he has in God. He even gives a defense between the Roman appointed king of uh, Judea, Agrippa II gives the truth of the gospel over and over again. But during his last piece of the trial in Caesarea, one of the governors says, well, why don't we just send you back to Jerusalem and let the religious council deal with you? And Paul, not wanting to go back to Jerusalem, knowing what might happen there, he appeals to Caesar. This is his right as a Roman citizen, and whether it is his strategy or not, this is actually then his ticket to Rome, the place that he's longed to go, that he'll end up in the capital of the empire to encourage the saints that are there, and that he might even go on further beyond to share the name of Jesus in places that he's yet to be named. So we've zoomed in, we've met Paul on this journey, and as he has been assigned to a centurion to guard over him, he's given great deference and latitude from that centurion on this journey from Caesarea to Rome. He is allowed a couple of his traveling friends. So there's a minister from one of the churches that Paul planted. And Luke is obviously along for the journey with him. Then he's also allowed to get off the ship and greet Christians and be cared for by the church and the cities in which they stop. So this is a lot of deference and latitude for a prisoner at this moment But Paul's also respected to some level on the ship because earlier in chapter 27, you'll see Paul having dialogue with the centurion and the captain of the ship. Sometimes you think, oh, he's a prisoner, so that means he's going to be in the lower hold of the ship and he's given like scraps to eat and no one wants to hear from him. But there's this reality that he actually has a voice and eventually that voice will be heeded. They'll do what he says. This ship, it is a little ship that is actually meant for shallow coastal drifting along the coastline, and it is in water at the exact wrong time of year. This comes after the Day of Atonement, so this is essentially the start of winter in the Mediterranean. You wouldn't do that, and wind and wave just proves to be too much for this ship, and they're not able to find a wintering port, so they just press on, they keep going, hoping that they're going to make it all the way. 
And then when we get to our section of Scripture this morning, they are in the midst of a 14-day storm. It even says where the light of day is barely noticeable. So you can imagine it's like we've just been tossed at sea for 14 days without any light, just wind, rain, and waves. Eventually, this ship will run aground and the waves will punish and utterly destroy the ship. This is what Paul has told the crew and the prisoners that are going to happen. We're going to have to run aground. We're all going to live, but this ship is done for. So just as through much of Acts, we see here something of Paul's resolve as a leader, as a believer, as a person. This is his steel in face of danger and apparent death at any moment. Because it seems that Paul has confidence, he says, in the God that he belongs to. And then he calls the others to take heart, take courage, because the purpose of God can be trusted. It's the truth that God will take us where we are going, shipwreck or not. So likewise this morning, our purpose is that we too might take courage when waters rise in our lives, when things go terribly wrong, when life unfolds contrary to our plans, because this exact same God calls us his own in Christ. Just like Paul, we can say, I belong to this God. He'll care for us. So as we progress this morning and think through that reality of Trusting the Lord is the life of the believer. There's just kind of three movements we want to think through. First, it's that his purpose prevails. Second, that we take courage in his providence. And then third, we live trusting the Lord. So his purpose prevails. And we see it unfolding here in Acts 27 and all throughout Scripture. And when stating that the purpose of God prevails, we should make abundantly clear who we think God is. And I think Grace Church is a lot like Reservoir Church. We share a lot of the theological and biblical focus DNA as churches. So it's safe for me to say who God is in this place. That he is the creator and sustainer of the universe whose thoughts and ways are higher than ours. And we see biblically that somehow, in a mysterious fashion, his decree, what he has determined to happen, and our will, this human responsibility of our existence, are compatible. That they actually work together. And this is not a God that is actually aloof and uninterested in your day. No, everything down to the breath that you are taking at this very moment has been ordered by this God. When we say his purpose prevails, that's who we're speaking of. His purpose prevails because he is the one who decides what prevails and what doesn't. And he is a God of his word. It's the truth that this isn't some recently formulated theology. A bunch of quasi-reformed guys didn't get together and say, hey, we should have a high view of the sovereignty of God. Because that's what reformed guys sound like. I promise. But this is actually the mentality of the church in Acts at its very birth. This is the thinking of Paul as he has gone through this excellent adventure of following and heralding Christ, this good news of Jesus. 
So if God is above all, if he's supreme, if he is sovereign and his purpose prevails, why a shipwreck? Couldn't Paul just have gotten some easy passage to Rome, maybe uh, teleported like Philip was earlier in the book of Acts? That would have been cool. I wish I could have been teleported from Escondido to La Mesa this morning. But we know, if you study Acts, probably you know Paul's actually been in shipwrecks before up until this point, and even to the extent that at least one time in the story of the book of Acts, he sends his team, his guys, on a ship, and he actually takes the, the land route, the much longer way, because he doesn't want to go on a boat again. And so we think, we hear, and we live through our own lives, and we say, well, why would the God who is in total control over just the whole of the universe? Why would he let his arguably most effective apostle have to swim for his life? Why would he let Paul be stranded and have to swim from a sandbar to a beach instead of dying? If we're honest, maybe this morning you don't give a rip about Paul. You just like to know why you have to have shipwreck in your own life. So while we don't have time this morning to do an exhaustive study of all the reasons, I think we can recognize some key reasons that life unfolds the way it does for those that believe in Jesus. First, I think it may be discipline. Scripture tells us that there are things in life that are meant to refine us, to sanctify us, to correct us as those that are loved by Christ. The author of Hebrews will tell us that he does it, Christ does it, he disciplines for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. So that shipwreck might mean that you are being sanctified in that moment. You are being made to experience more of the holiness of Christ that you might uh, example that in your own life. And when life happens like that, we can evaluate it. We can ask the Lord or others around us that we're accountable to if there's any sin lingering. We can repent of it and we can learn in the midst of the discipline. We can share in his holiness. So discipline is one reason, but life then also progresses the way it does with the roadblocks and the hiccups against our plan because there is actually a cosmic enemy that is determined to rob us of security and joy in Christ. We see it in the old story of Job that the devil must actually be allowed to trouble this faithful servant that even Jesus will make this reality clear when he warns Peter of his coming denial in Luke 22. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brother. So there's discipline, there's war, and then just the raw exposure of the goodness of God. Paul preaches of this in Athens, that he says God determines our seasons and boundaries so that we will seek him. That we would go through life, experience what we do, that we'd be drawn to God himself. Even Jesus in his ministry, he and his posse are approaching this guy who has been blind his whole life and he's in need of healing And in John 9, he tells a story. He says, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. 
So in the thoughts that are higher than ours, there may be a vast array of different reasons, but his purpose always rules. His purpose always prevails. As Proverbs 19 says, many plans are in the person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. Job speaking to God after his experience in Job 42 says, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. So this is the God that fulfills his purpose for us. We see that all over the Psalms. Psalm 57 is great toward that end. And that is a promise, friends, that is actually then on steroids in Christ. It's realized. It's good. So why are there storms and shipwrecks? God, who controls the winds and the waves, could certainly have spared Paul his dire strait at this moment. We know Whatever God allows to come our way, he loves us and will give us sufficient grace to endure and remain faithful to him. This reality, this thinking, this posture and mentality is actually Paul's backbone come this rising water, the beating of the wind and rain, the danger that they're experiencing. He relies on the truth that God's purpose prevails. And we see here that God makes a particular promise clear to Paul. If we've been studying all along here in Acts, back in Acts 23, verse 11, Paul has this experience where the Lord actually comes to him. And Luke writes that the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. So going back chapters, like this is years in the the unfolding of the narrative of the history of the church. Paul has this promise that he is meant to go to Rome and preach. This was an unconditional promise, one writer says, that Paul would go to Rome. No doubt about it. However, God did not promise smooth sailing along the way. And as we serve Christ, there will be, friends, storms, hardships, high seas, breakdowns, but also peace, assurance, fruitfulness, and the sustaining presence of God. This is what Paul has. This is what's in his toolbox of living life and doing ministry. And he doesn't doubt God. And all through this trial, through the threats that he's experienced, through the violence of his whole ministry, through years of doing things that don't necessarily end up going to plan, Paul trusts Jesus. We're told in our section of Scripture that he has a special visit. And this is good. Now, if an angel visits you, you are to go to your elders and talk about it and evaluate it and then tell me what happened. I want to know. But Paul, they're, they're struggling, and Paul has this visit from this angel of the God that he belongs to, and he calls everyone on the ship then to take courage because he has this promise. This angel told him, don't be afraid. God is saving everyone here because you have to go to Rome. And Paul is clinging to that word because he has met the God of the universe who keeps his word to his people. And then on the ship, we see if we continue to read that they receive this good report. They actually start listening to Paul because of the promise and the purpose of God. So as we live, as we go through our day, even today, we might not have a clear situational promise for each circumstance that we experience, but God's overarching purpose still is meant to bolster us when the ships of life take on water. 
Because he knows what he's doing and his purpose prevails. And in that prevailing purpose, we then as believers, as followers of Christ, are meant to take courage in his providence. So while we're not usually keen on hearing encouraging voices when we're in the midst of a sinking ship, the prisoners, the crew of this boat, the centurions, they actually listen. They hear Paul say, take heart, take courage, because there will be no loss of any lives because of the God that I belong to. If you underline things in your Bible or highlight them in your app, that is a great verse to think through and to reflect on again and again, because if Paul can say it and you're in Christ, you can say that too. The God that I belong to says so. I love what the late R.C. Sproul said, that anybody can believe that God exists. Believing in God isn't hard. What is difficult is believing God. Paul told the sailors that not one of them would perish, and he believed that God would do exactly what he said he would do, and he does. So Paul is inviting everyone to trust in the Lord. And just like Paul, we can find our anchor, our resolve, our trust in the midst of the unexpected, in the midst of the difficult, of the traumatic, because we belong to Christ. We are His. Those that believe in Jesus are made His. Those that trust that His life of obedience has been granted to us. Those that see their sin covered by His sacrifice on the cross. Those that breathe with new life because of His resurrection now belong to Him. Amen. It's okay, I have to tell my church when to amen too. But we have been ransomed, ransomed with his life that we would become children of God as we've sung this morning. And once you are in, you, friends, are absolutely secure. As Paul will write to the Corinthian church, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So this God we talked about, the sovereign of the universe that is over everything, he says you are his. And if you are his, you are exactly as secure as Christ is. If we belong to him, then he cares for us and his purpose is ultimately for our good. As scripture tells us, because of his promises, his word to us, we can actually trust him. We can take courage in his providence, in his control, and even in his detours in our lives. It's the truth that this courage then won't always remove the pain I wish it did but it will actually point us in the direction that God desires as we trust in Jesus. And friends, there is no better place to be. One pastor writes that if I'm told that I'm to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, every jolt along the way will remind me that I'm on the right road. Christ warned his disciples that they would face trials, but he also assured them he would be with them. And the record of Paul's shipwreck is intriguing history, but it also is a metaphor of what all Christians experience in their voyage through life. So when the waves wreck the ship, when the storms just won't move on and they sit over us, when the path it's an unexpected turn or a dead end. We then turn to the one who holds us, holds us and who holds everything. 
It's the words of the writer of Hebrews. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source, the author and perfecter of our faith. So friends, where you look matters. When the ship is taking on water, please be looking to Jesus. Makes me think of Cabrillo Point. It's like some of you live on Point Loma, so you're familiar. I love Cabrillo Point. It's our local national monument. So we take the family down there often. But one of the attractions there that many of you know it well is the old lighthouse, right? It sits there high on the point overlooking all of San Diego, all of the coast out on the other way and the bay before it. It has a commanding view and it's placed in just the perfect spot to look like it has authority and it's important. That is a lighthouse that helped almost zero ships, right? Do you know that of the story? Because that lighthouse on Cabrillo Point is in the absolute wrong place to be a beacon to save ships. Because in San Diego, we get too much fog. We have the marine layer that comes in day in and day out. And so often, that lighthouse is hidden from ships that are down on the water. So then eventually, that was closed down, and the Coast Guard builds a new lighthouse at the bottom of the point that's right on the water so it could actually be seen and actually protect ships. Now think of that just like the law. Right? The rules of coming before God. This is a, a call to live in protect, uh, perfection, to attain entry into the presence of God. And here is the law sitting high on the hill, just out of reach. And then Jesus comes through the water. He comes to where you are and shines for your safety, for your salvation, for your truest life. And we trust him because he sets the seasons and he tells the winds where to blow because God is the true actor behind the scenes. He is the ultimate deliverer in life. So when we're anchored then to the providence of God, we take courage. We can sustain others as well. Just like Paul, we can call others to take heart, to take courage that the purpose of God will prevail. And that's his point. That's why your life is unfolding the way it is, that you would be drawn closer to God, that he would draw you unto himself, and he would use you to draw others to himself as well. So take courage in his providence. Should make a bumper sticker. Could be good. His purpose prevails. We take courage in his providence and then we just live trusting Jesus. Sounds easy, doesn't it? But what does it actually mean to live trusting Jesus? How do we actually live in response to his providence? And if we were continued to read here in Acts 27, I think we get some really healthy clues from this shipwreck story of Paul. Because in verse 33 and 34, the night before hitting the sandbar, Luke writes that when it was about daylight, so this is after Paul said, don't freak out people, we're going to be saved, God that I belong to has promised 
And when it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair on your head. So we look at this, we read it, and when we think when life hits, eat something, right? Take care of yourself. Get some sleep. This crew, this story in Acts 27, they have gone 14 days without food. And it's probably strategic for them because they're not eating because they don't want to get seasick, right? They're just being tossed back and forth. And Paul here urges them to eat. And he says it's for your survival that they need to care for their physical needs. So friends, you would be surprised how much might just change in our lives if we just ate right and got a good night's sleep. And say, the preacher gave me permission. Do it. So go for a walk. Sit on a swing. When was the last time you did a swing? Right? I got little kids, eight, six, and four, and I go on a swing and I get dizzy. Like, what is that? I do it. I do it anyway. So just take a break and breathe in the rest that we are promised in Christ. Joshua read from Matthew in the pastoral prayer time this truth of come to me all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus ain't lying at that moment. The truth is that we need to stop trying to take the role of Savior from Jesus. Because friends, hear this. You are not saved by how you suffer by how many days you can go without. You are saved by the work of Jesus for you. So eat a snack and take a nap, right? And no, it's a dangerous journey. Life, living, following Christ. So fuel up for it, train for it, and then just live. We don't hear a lot about sinking ships in our day because we're kind of moved on. There's still a lot of ships that move and work. And when we do hear of a sinking ship, it's a terrible tragedy. But those that currently most often make the news are cruise ships that sink. And it's sad, but it's kind of funny. Here's the perfect life with the parties, the pastries, and the pools, and they slowly sink and they ruin someone's vacation. And it's awful, but it's absolutely not a metaphor for the Christian life. Because, friends, we are on a battleship. Our Lido deck is the mission field, so our perspective is meant to follow suit. We would live trusting the Lord. I've been so challenged by this quote from A.W. Tozer. He said that pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Mm. But real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam first stood upon the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. Romans 8 tells us we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And friends, I am so thankful that Romans 8 does not say we think all things work together. But instead, we know that is taking 
courage. That is trusting in the providence of Jesus. And it is not by any means a call to stupidity. We can be careful. We can study. We can plan. But we do all of that trusting the one that we belong to, trusting Jesus. Because things won't always make sense. We see now as through a mirror dimly, but we know the one who keeps us and he can be trusted. So trust Jesus. Live trusting Jesus. Sometimes some st- the storms of life, the things that happen actually just come so that others will look beyond us and see Christ. As you're going through your shipwreck, as you're going through the detour of your life, let others see your trust in the Lord. That might mean you drop the facade of having it all together, that you then find support among the family of the church, and you run to Jesus over and over again, and you let them remind you to run to Jesus over and over again. Because your shipwreck might just be so that God's work might be displayed in you. Life comes at us from all different angles, all different situations, no matter how well we plan, even if our plans succeed or they don't. And it's the truth that Jesus is greater than yesterday's failures. Jesus is greater than today's pressures. And Jesus is greater than tomorrow's anxiety. So where is your trust today? Are you trusting in your own ability, your own skills, your ability to wing it, your ability to store up enough loot that you can be well cared for long into the future? Do, like plan, do that. But are you trusting in that more than you're trusting in Jesus? So this morning, turn to Jesus. Believe in his life, death, and resurrection for you that he gave himself to give you life, to bring you to God for your good and for his glory and let him rescue you. Let him give you hope and give you someone to trust in, come whatever may in life. A couple weeks ago now, my wife Stacy and I were watching this Nat Geo, it's a channel, right? And they had a program on Yellowstone and our summer vacation, we took our family to Yellowstone, Tetons, Mount Rushmore, a bunch of other things. But when we got back, we decided to actually see it and watch a show about it, right? And when we tuned in there in the midst of this harrowing experience for this one young bison calf, it seems to be just a day or fewer, even mere hours old, And as the narrator is telling the story, the calf is with its mother as the herd is crossing the Lamar River, which proved just to be a terrible idea for this small calf. It's yet to live very long. Despite this calf's and its mother's best efforts, it's actually then carried downstream away from its mother, away from the herd, and the herd just continues on. You see... In the pictures, the the herd just keeps going across the river into the field it was going. Then they cut to commercial. But when they come back, it's amazing. This calf had been taken down the river some distance, and somehow the calf was able to get out of the river and onto what is essentially a gravel island. 
Maybe not unlike the sandbar where Paul's ship was wrecked. But this calf, unsure, without its mother, it was exhausted and cold. It just settled down to sleep as dusk came. And watching this, you are absolutely sure that that calf is not going to make it through the night. I mean, this is the wilderness. This is a dangerous place. What they show in the video as the dawn breaks, there is the calf just standing and ready to continue on if only she could figure out where to go and what to do in that moment. And then tragically into view comes a wolf. And he doesn't waste any time. He attacks the calf. He's biting. He's jumping, latching onto her snout. And at this point, my wife Stacy has her eyes covered and she's begging that I turn the channel. I'm like, no, this is nature. You know, watch it. But the calf fights. It's like her instincts kick in and she kicks back. She's jumping at the wolf and trying to get away. And she is not going to die without a fight. And you feel so good for her in this moment when you see it happen. She's making her stand. I hope she can do it. But you realize she's just a calf and probably a really tasty one at that. She's fighting against the apex predator of the Yellowstone ecosystem. Her chances are slim. Then all of a sudden, the wolf jumps back. And he turns his head because something loud is coming. And into view runs the mother bison, which is a thousand pounds of protection of angry mom rage. And she charges at the wolf. In that moment, the calf is saved. And it's fascinating that wherever that mother bison was, that she sought after that calf that was lost downstream. And the next day she found her and saved her. And friends... That's our story. We are rescued by the one that desires to gather us like a hen does her chicks to save us, to care for us, to flourish us. And even if we get eaten, we get to be with Jesus. So take courage. Live trusting Him. Follow Him. As one old pastor is quoted as saying, let us say these same words, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Trusting the Lord is the life of the believer. As we close this morning, let's hear the words of the Lord from Psalm 91. May it not only be a truth we declare, but a prayer and petition that we make that we would live this life. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he himself will rescue you from the bird trap. From the destructive plague, he will cover you with his feathers. He will, you will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. 
You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked. You have made the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. And the voice in the psalm changes to the voice of the Lord. Because he has his heart set on me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. Father, we thank you for that truth, that wonderful reality of a life of trusting you, that you, in Christ, will rescue us. You will show us your salvation and that nothing, no shipwreck, no detour, no tragic event will keep us from your love or your purpose for us. Lord, help us to trust you in this life and help us to trust you in such a way that others would see you through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, let's thank Jonathan.